Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and his licentiate and doctorate degrees in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1977, he became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement in 2015, just last year. He's a well-known author and a convert uh, to the Catholic Church. He has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism and has just published a new book on modernism published by, um, by CUA Press, Catholic University Press, an anti-modernist anthology. So that is now on our video library for uh, the world to see. So make sure you get on Catholic University Press and get that book. He's uh, presented regularly at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we're delighted to, to welcome him back. Dr. Marshner, come on up. I'm talking tonight about living in a resurrected body in what I call a fire-cured and glorified universe or world. My texts are all taken from later parts of the Summa of St. Thomas, some from uh, Prima Secundae, most of them from the third part, where he's dealing with issues having to do with the resurrection and the life everlasting that we shall lead in our resurrected bodies. Now, I like to start with a somewhat prior issue, because um, if we don't get this one right, the topics that come later are not going to make as much sense. Should we expect to be active even in heaven? Or is heaven like the land of the everlasting weekend? <laughs> Should we expect to be active even in heaven? St. Thomas takes up that question in the Prima Secundae, question 3, article 2, where the issue is whether there is an activity that's at the heart of being fulfilled. I was talking to you last time about the meaning of the word fulfillment, how it includes both the subjective side of being happy and the objective side of being well off. Being fulfilled is being well off and knowing it and rejoicing in it. Now then, insofar as your being is fulfilled in something created existing in oneself, 
one has to say that one's being fulfilled is an activity, says St. Thomas. Being fulfilled is one's ultimate completion. After all, each thing is complete to the extent it is active. A potency without its act is incomplete. So being fulfilled must be found in an ultimate state of activity. Well, it's obvious an activity is an ultimate act state of the doer, which is why we call it second act, but never mind that Aristotelian talk. A thing exists for the sake of its activity. So when the catechism said, why did God make you? Okay. The answer was not just for his own glory, but that we should know, love, and glorify him, right? Those are activities. And Aquinas had a hard time getting to this conclusion because he was heavily under the influence of very Platonic thinkers who thought that the body was irrelevant to being totally fulfilled. It was all a matter of the soul and who thought that uh, life eternal consists entirely in contemplating the truth, seeing the truth, mulling over the truth. Well, Aquinas had to make room in that Platonic worldview for a key insight of his own favorite teacher, Aristotle, namely, that being happy or, or well-off or fulfilled is, is flourishing. It's flourishing. And it does make sense to think of flourishing as doing, fulfilling things all around well. If you do fulfilling things all around well, that's when you're flourishing. Now, Aristotle thought we flourished most by doing the most fulfilling thing a human being can do, which was contemplating divine things. And Aquinas read activity in accord with complete virtue as defining the getting it part of our right ultimate purpose. What we get is the very substance of God. The getting it is, is um, doing these activities. Aristotle then supports a key point of the teaching of St. Augustine, namely that blessedness is the activity of seeing God. Seeing God is not going to be a totally passive, lay it on me, God. Lay it on me. No. Uh, seeing God has to be uh, an operation, an activity. And if you don't put some sort of important activity into your understanding of fulfillment, as among the very goods that will be included in your fulfillment, then you will foster an illusion 
the illusion, and it's a deadly one, is that being fulfilled is being in a state in which you can be put passively. As though blessedness were a bowl of cherries into which you could be dropped. This? Well, it isn't that way. Many people have that idea. It's a source of considerable misery. So-and-so was born rich, so he, he just fell into a tub of butter. Oh, I wish I could fall in a tub. And so-and-so had the right shape nose, so this gorgeous girl just fell for him, and now he's in a tub of butter. Why did anybody fall for me that way? Okay. But if you, if you reflect on your own experience of other people in their lives, you know that the most unhappy people are those who are most at leisure, most unwilling to undertake anything, most passive, most, um, well, spoiled. They want things handed to them. And what we're learning from Aquinas is that you can't become a totally fulfilled human being if you have everything handed to you. And that's not only true in this life, but also true in the life of grace. Okay. Grace is given to you free, that's for sure. Free gratis. But then you have to cooperate with it, or that life, that grace does not make you alive. Okay. You have to let that grace work in your will and choose accordingly. Work in your heart and then love accordingly. Work in your mind and then set your ambitions accordingly. Yes? That's how cooperating with grace leads you to fulfillment, through active cooperation. And I would just like to suggest, for your consideration, a line of thinking that just did not occur to St. Thomas. It wasn't in any of his sources. And I don't know why not. But it's not in Augustine, and it's, it's not in Peter Lombard, and it's, you know, not in the Fathers very much. And when you think about it, it's peculiar that they overlooked this. But look. Complete fulfillment, like the incomplete kind we experience in this life, is a state at whose core there's uniquely fulfilling activity. But in order for fulfillment to become complete, it hardly seems necessary that all other activities cease. Does it? What we need to do is realize that being fulfilled is like reaching the acme of life in Christ. Now, I want you to think about what it is to be alive in Christ. It isn't just assenting to the truths he taught. It is also loving the things he loved, serving those whom he came to save. Yes? So there are lots of activities involved in living 
the life of Christ. Okay? Now, here's the problem with the active life as long as we're in this world. We cannot pursue the good of our neighbor by active works of mercy and charity and so on without also taking time away, setting aside the contemplation we should be doing, the praying we should be doing. I know the motto is make your life a prayer, make your work a prayer. I, I, I love that motto. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? In this life, we've experienced a conflict between all the things being alive in Christ requires of us and that central spiritual contemplation that we've been taught is the very heart of it. But when we get to heaven, okay, does that mean that everything else falls away and we just do the contemplating because there's the vision? Is that what it means? I don't think so. I think it means that when we get to heaven, our union with God in contemplating his truth will not be interrupted. And I want you to think about a topic I'm going to say more about later tonight. You all know that the saints in heaven, up there enjoying the beatific vision, okay, but they are also solicited by our prayers. Okay. And St. Anthony does not say, oh bother, she's lost that thing again. <laughs> and you know the other, the other saints have special things as well. Uh, you don't lose your vision of God when you answer the prayers of the faithful if you are a blessed soul in heaven, right? So in heaven too, life in Christ will not be just thinking or seeing or understanding. It will also be loving and serving. All right. Now, if I have said enough about that point, I want to go on to the issue I just raised. What about the saints in heaven? When we get there, will we hear the prayers of the faithful on earth? Yes, of course, we will. That's just a matter of the faith. I don't need to give you any fancy theology to explain that. After all, beatitude, total fulfillment in heaven, consists in having everything that pertains to your fulfillment as a grace-filled human being, right? And that means knowing a heck of a lot about yourself, your own affairs. Now, that's not... When you see God, you don't necessarily see everything there is to know about everybody. Made that point last time. But you're going to know about yourself. And you're going to know who's praying to you. Yes, you're going to know who's praying to you. You're going to know what they're asking for. So you will know all that. Question is, will we be bothered by those prayers? Right? And this, I think, is the great thing. Because our contemplation of God's essence will not be interrupted. Okay? 
we will never be bothered. It's not as though we'll be too busy to listen to the prayers of the desperate people on earth. Okay? And because we see God's essence, we will have a unique insight into what his providence has prepared for those who are now seeking our help. And therefore, we will have the straight goods on what to intercede for them about. Okay. Um, little Johnny prays to God and says, Dear God, I want a gun. And he intercedes and he, he calls upon Saint, oh, Saint Bernard. He's heard of Saint Bernard because it's a dog by that name. So he's heard of Saint Bernard. So he goes after Saint Bernard and wants Saint Bernard to intercede that God will give him a gun for Christmas. And see, here's the deal. <laughs> Saint Bernard just knows better <laughs> than to add his intercessory influence to that request. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that that would always be the way. Normally, I'm thinking normal case. I mean, yeah, I understand there could be a kid lost in the woods, desperately in need of a firearm to keep the wolves at bay. Then he'll hear the prayer. But in normal circumstances, no. And then there's this. When we pray for people in heaven, and I think you should plan to make quite a career of it, because history is probably going to go on for a long time yet. You don't know how many generations of descendants you will have, each suffering under the blows and vicissitudes of their children. I mean, I mean, the hard life. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you can plan on a long career of interceding just for people who are related to you. Oh, and it ain't that, it isn't only that. It's also that the older you get in this life, the more people you know who have already fallen asleep in the Lord. You know what I mean? And most of those people are not out of deep yogurt yet. <laughs> Okay. They are saved. Yes, they are saved. They are going to heaven. Yes, they are. But they are experiencing an interesting purgation. And um, you know, the church warns us not to put a whole lot of, uh, of um, eh, credence in the numbers that used to be tossed around. But, you know, you do a certain indulgence, you get so many years off purgatory and so on. Man, play it. Don't take those numbers with dead earnestness. But still, the tradition is that the purgation takes a while. And um, you know it's going to take a while. You know it darn well. Every one of you in here who's married knows it. Because everyone of you in here who is married to another person, obviously, 
is married to someone who needs fixing in many dimensions. And he or she probably knows it and can't quite get there. You know, none of us improve overnight in matters of character, affection, getting rid of a deep habit. Have you tried that lately? It ain't quick. It isn't fun either. Not fun at all. I should know. But the point is, we know it takes a while, and it's going to take a while in purgatory. Okay? The fire of purgatory is not magic. What the fire of purgatory does is keep your mind on the ball. It will keep your mind fixed on what needs fixing and what you should be doing about it, how you should be praying, how you should be acting, how you should be disciplining yourself, and so on. How you should be hardening your skin, and so on. Not hardening your heart, of course. All right. So you're going to have a lot to pray about. Because we've all touched a great many people. And then we'll, we can ask the question, are our prayers going to be heard? All right, I'm, going to, I'm expecting to make a career of this. Praying for people now living, now dead. Alive after me, died before me. They're in purgatory. They're still in this life. They have needs, and um, they've asked me, of all the recently departed, to pray for them. Okay. Now, you may be lucky in a sense that you may be among the less well-known of the departed, and so people will all be turning their prayers to somebody else. But um, don't despair. Eventually, those who have, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, those who have an enormous burden of business interceding will be happy to pass some of the work along to you. You just got here, hey, you're in great, try it for a while. Anyway, can we be sure our prayers will be heard? Yes, because we will know what not to pray for from what we see in God. And we will know what to pray for, what will be consonant with God's providential plan for the person on whose behalf we are praying. Is that all clear? And then I have to mention this. At one point, St. Thomas considered the question, well, what, what if I say a prayer oh, to the Blessed Virgin or St. Catherine or somebody way up there, and uh, they decide, as I can well imagine, that I'm not worthy of their prayers. <laughs> can you be sort of given the cold shoulder by the saints in heaven because you're unworthy? 
of their prayers and their attention? Okay, St. Thomas asks himself the question, and here's the answer he gives. I love this. The very fact that you invoke a saint makes you worthy of being heard by him or her. Okay, the very fact that you invoke the saint, that your devotion leads you far enough to invoke, is all the qualification you need to be heard. Isn't that great? I think that's consoling. All right. I move on now to another topic altogether. In question 77, in the third part of the swan, we get to the topic of the final conflagration. Okay? The final conflagration. That's why I talk about living in a fire-cured universe. Is there coming a purgation of the world? Absolutely. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, you can look it up. You can look at 1 Corinthians 8. There's a coming purge of the world as we know it. And will that purge be by fire? Oh, yes. The key verse there is in the second epistle of Peter. The last chapter of it is chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 12. Okay. The elements themselves will melt with fervent heat, says that verse. All right. So there is a huge conflagration coming, out of which the corruption that is found in so many aspects of our world will be just purged away. Seems like a pretty radical method to me. It's certainly more thorough than the last time the world got purged. That was by water. Water doesn't turn things to cinders. Water's nicer to you. However, there are many questions that will be asked, that the theologians have asked, about this fire which will come at the end of world history. Okay. Does it come at the same time as the Last Judgment? And the answer is, in part yes, in part no. Okay. This consuming, world-purging fire begins before the Last Judgment. Okay. This is what people are going to be terrified by and fleeing from. They'll pray for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from this. But at the same time, it will be going on during the Last Judgment, and then in the case of the damned, oh dear, it will continue after the Last Judgment. Speaking of the fire of the damned, which we've just learned is a continuation of the universal conflagration that's going to wipe out the world as we know it. What about the souls in hell? Okay. Now, I know they're going to get their bodies back. 
they get in the resurrection too. They will get their bodies back, but with every wart and wrinkle. All their deformities are going to be readily visible. So, but right now they don't have their bodies. And yet they're supposed to be in hell. And they're supposed to be tormented by fire. Question. St. Thomas asks this, or I wouldn't bring it up. Because I need his answer. How the heck can you be tormented by fire if you haven't got a body? Interesting question. Yes. Okay. I'll give you St. Thomas's answer. And then I'll give you what I think is a somewhat better answer that wasn't available to him. Here's his answer. You are tormented by the sight of something you can't escape. Okay. When the damned see the fire in which they are enveloped, they know they will never get out of it. There's no exit from the fire. So it's a source of psychological suffering, despair, and so on. Okay? I think it's a darn good explanation, and yet I'm very surprised by it, because I think we today can do a little bit better. I want you to reflect upon the fact that today we easily draw a distinction between physical pain and the pain that's in your mind. All right. Now, in the, in the Middle Ages, they, they couldn't do that because they didn't know anything about nerves. But now we do. And we've all had the experience that we can have a pain originating somewhere in the body and being transmitted up through the nerves. So it's in our minds and we don't feel it. Why don't you feel it? Because you're distracted? Because you're busy? Even when you have a toothache, I bet you don't feel it every minute you have it. There are times when you're not thinking about it. You get your mind off it, you don't feel it. The pain goes away, in a sense. Now, here's, a, here's my funny question for you. Can you have a pain you don't feel? Or better asked, if you don't feel it, is it a pain? I think the answer is no, at least in the sense that interests me at the moment. In one sense, yeah, it's still there. The, uh, the, 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 the corruption in my foot that's doing so-and-so to my nerves, that's still there. But the sensation of it is not in my mind. So in that sense, I'm not feeling it. You see? Okay. Now, let's turn that around. How about suggesting that the psychological suffering of being in fire, the psychological pain of being turned into a crisp, is right there in the mind of the damned. They don't need a body to feel it, because they don't need the pain in the physical sense. 
They need the pain in the psychological sense, which is vindictive, which is God's punishment for those people. Right? But that's just my suggestion. Anyway, I thought I would raise the issue in case anybody gets worried about it. The destruction of the world will begin by fire. Now, will it be the same kind of fire as we know in this life? And St. Thomas thinks, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much the same element that they thought in the Middle Ages was, was an element fire. Pretty much the same stuff, but endowed with some God-given virtualities because God is using it as an instrument. Next question. Will this fire reach far enough to burn up or consume or purge or whatever you want to call it, the high heavens? Now, for St. Thomas, that was, I don't know, a sphere or two beyond what you could see at night. For us, that's distant galaxies. Is the fire that consumes the world as we know it going to incinerate remote gal galaxies? Well, I don't know the answer, but I do know that St. Thomas's answer was no. Okay? The only thing that that final fire is going to purge is the parts of the natural order that have interacted with man and been put to base uses by human sins, okay? So natural resources we've wasted or abused, they're going to be purged away. Nasty stuff we've done to our own body is going to be purged away. And, um, and so on. So it's, it's, it's pretty local to this world. Okay. Maybe now that we've been on the moon, it's got to get to the moon. <laughs> but um, if we don't get to Mars pretty quick, I think Mars is going to be spared. <laughs> okay. Next question St. Thomas answered, is this fire going to consume all the other elements? It's going to destroy all the water there is, all the earth there is, all the air there is. Well, those were the elements as he knew them. That's medieval science for you. And St. Thomas had the idea, which all the medievals had, got it from Aristotle, among other places, that God preserves a kind of balance among the five elements out of which the world is composed the four elements out of which the world is composed. Uh, no one element is allowed to take over or destroy all the others. <sighs> Things are a bit more difficult for us now because we have, how many are we up to? 106 or so elements, 110? Some of them very radioactive. I don't mind if they get burned up. But uh, we have a whole lot of elements these days. And we have to ask, is this fire going to destroy all of the chemical compounds that are made of those various elements? And that sure sounds like 
what St. Peter promised us in his second epistle. The elements will melt with fervent heat. But again, it will be a local phenomenon and not galaxy-wide, I would guess. Okay. I want to move on to the resurrection. I've got to move on to the good stuff before I run out of time. At some point, during or after, immediately after the last judgment, we will enter into our resurrected bodies. Yes? Question. Will we all enter the resurrection from an action form? Are we all due to be incinerated before we're resurrected? And St. Thomas's answer was yes. He thought the answer, even those people who are still alive, when the last conflagration comes, well, they're obviously going to be incinerated. Okay? They get burned up. Everybody in the graves is burned up. The graves are burned up. The gravestones are burned up. Everything is incinerated. And then, from the ashes, we are all brought back to life. And here's the hard part of that doctrine. I am not going to be replaced. You are not going to be replaced by a doppelganger. Okay? Somebody who looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, but isn't you. Okay? No doppelgangers in the resurrection. Who is going to come back to life? Answer you. You. After the total destruction of your human body as it now exists, you will come back to life in the same body in which you died. There will be a numerical identity of the body that's raised in the resurrection and the body that was put in the tomb on your day of burial. The very same body will rise again. That's how we can say you are coming back. Okay? Now then, theologians have a wonderful way of worming into tough topics, don't they? Okay, 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 look. Got some ashes here. Put God's power to work and bring a human soul back, let's say your soul, and those ashes are going to become living matter again, bones, flesh, organs, and so on. And first thing you know, you're going to be there alive. Okay. In the very body in which you died. In other words, your body will come back to you. Some theologians, particularly a guy named Aeneas of Sinai, not a well-known father of the church, but a character, maintained that as long as you get your soul back 
any matter that that soul informs will be your body. Whatever your soul informs is your body. So don't worry about lost particles. Don't worry about the digestive processes of crocodiles and so on and so on. Whatever matter your soul animates is your body. Isn't that a great theory? Nobody hardly accepts it. Hardly anybody. The traditional theologians have maintained no. If there's nothing but your soul linking this new body to the old one, you may as well say you don't get your body back. It's gone. That's not like resurrection, that's like resuscitation. I don't know. So the majority opinion, the vast majority opinion of Orthodox theologians is that, no, something more is required. There's got to be a numerical identity of the body that died with the body that is raised again. And just having the same soul isn't quite enough to do that. Okay? Now then, even in the Middle Ages, people like St. Thomas were aware that your body, that physical thing which is right now your body, is not a set of particles. It's not a definite set of cells. How do we know that? Because your body is always shedding some cells and growing new ones. Okay? Your bodily life is like a process in which your flesh is being renewed, stuff is being sloughed off, cast off, never mind what else, off, and it, it goes away and, and, and new things replace it. And so St. Thomas uses this comparison. Your body is like a city, okay? As long as there are people in the city, it's the same city. But the same people aren't going to be there all the time. Okay? So think of your body as a kind of Washington, D.C., in which there are people moving in and people moving out. It stays the same city year after year, generation after generation, even though after about 100 years, not a single person in it is the same as who was alive before. Similarly, your body is going to lose every cell it currently has. Okay? Yeah. So the, the medievals understood, look, getting exactly the right body back is not a matter of finding a chunk that didn't dissolve. Not a matter of finding a piece, a piece of the original. If you have pieces of the original, fine. But it's not a matter of having pieces of the original. It's a matter of reconstituting the same digestive system and flesh-building system, whatever you want to call that system. The same nutritional system that we're living in now. Yes? And, of course, um, I think there's a lot of good new theology to be done now that we know about genes. They didn't know about them. 
They didn't know that inside every cell in your body there is a code that may as well have your name written in it. Because it's unique to you, right? So I think we have better ideas now than they did in the Middle Ages about how we're going to get identically our same bodies back. And I'm always glad to point out that traditional doctrines get easier to defend over time rather than the reverse. Yes. So, we're going to come back in numerically the same body. Is this body going to have all of the members it now has? Are you coming back with all your members? Yep. What about members that won't have any use in the resurrection? St. Thomas's answer is everything that belongs to the integrity of human nature will come back to you in your resurrected body. Okay? So, uh, obviously your brain cells, your heart, your vital organs, they're all going to be back. But he says the same about your sexual organs. He had to fight a heresy, well, not much of a heresy, but a funny theological opinion that prevailed in the Middle Ages, which died out some while ago. That was the theory that we're all going to come back as males. Yes. Because uh, Aristotle said that nature has an easier time making, making a male. The, the male babies get their life started 40 days earlier than them. Never mind. Never mind. Bad biology, bad nonsense. But no, the women are going to have all of their external genitalia and so are the guys. But what's the point? We're not going to marry anymore. St. Thomas says, never mind that. Just because the organ doesn't have the use to which you needed it, for which you needed it in this life, doesn't mean it has no purpose. It's there to manifest the glory of God in your integral nature. Yeah. Okay. What about your hair and nails? Those seem to be excrescences, things that grow out of you and that you don't really need and, and so on. And Aquinas considers that, and he says, yeah, you're going to get them back. If you have gone bald in the meantime, you're getting all your hair back. Similarly, if people have had nasty accidents or been mutilated, lost a hand or something, they're going to get it back. If it belongs to the integrity of human nature, you get it back. If you lost it by accident in this life, you get it back. Okay. And so the wounds, okay, don't be afraid to suffer martyrdom. You're not going to come out of it disfigured for long. When you get your resurrected body back, all of the wounds inflicted in your martyrdom are going to be wiped out. You're going to be truly glorious, handsomer than ever. Are we all going to come back the same age?
many medievals thought we would. Kind of a perfect age. And um, <clears throat> their idea of the perfect age was 33. Not only because that was about the age of our Lord, but also because uh, it's not too young and it's not too old. You've, you've gotten rid of all of the, dis in, the inconveniences of youth and growth spurt and all that stuff. And at the same time, you have not yet encountered the inconveniences of old age and decay. So, great age. Are we all going to come back the same age? Aquinas says, yeah, more or less. Yeah, roughly speaking. Because we'll be at that perfect age of human flourishing. You're an adult, but you're old enough to know better. I mean, old enough to, never mind. Okay. When we have this glorified body, are we, are we going to be able to go instantly from one place to another? This is the one of the attributes of the resurrected body that theologians discuss. It's called agilitas. Okay. Are you going to be able to go from here to there at the speed of thought or something? Speed of thought or th speed of light or anything? And Aquinas doesn't say. But he does say you're not going to be able to be instantly in another place without going through the places in between. Because that's how a body travels. Okay? Angels are different. Angels go from here to there simply by taking up another project. An angel only is where it acts. Because an angel has no body. But you will have a body. And so, yeah, you'll be able to go places at tremendous speed, but going through the intermediate spaces. Sounds so like a sensible answer to me. I, um, I'm looking forward to kind of making the grand tour of the galaxy when I'm in my resurrected body. I think it's a kind of tourism we can't enjoy in this life. And uh, I'm going. To, if I get to do this, I'm going to be smiling and grinning all the way at the frustration of Carl Sagan. <laughs> he wants all those smart aliens out there to hear our signals that take thirty thousand years to get to their lousy planet. And I'll be there in ten minutes or whatever, like in Star Wars. I'll be there in no time, and I will see if there's uh, anything to uh, Sagan's uh, dreams. Hmm? I think it'd be fun. And after all, the universe is around. We may as well enjoy it. What's it for? However, there's another one of those attributes of the resurrected body that, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on its name at the moment. It's not agility. It's... Um, Hmm? Subtlety. Subtlety. That's the one I want. As our Lord in his resurrected body was able to go through walls, okay, are we going to be able to go through apparently solid spaces? And um, the theologians have all said yes. 
This is an attribute of the resurrected body. So it would be impossible to imprison a resurrected person. Okay? Take that, Stalin. <laughs> impossible to imprison. And um, that brings up an interesting question. All right, all right, all right. You've got two bodies, mine and yours, let's say, and they both have the attribute of subtilitas. They can both go through apparently solid things. Okay. So can they occupy the same space? Can they just penetrate each other? Okay. Hi, I'm what? X equals something and Y equals something and here in the three-dimensional grid, I'm, I'm at this point. Where are you? Same point. <laughs> Can we occupy the same space in our resurrected bodies? And uh, I can't believe St. Thomas actually bothered to answer this, but he did. And he says no. No. For unexpected reasons having to do, I think, with the demands of privacy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right, now I'm about to end here. Very soon. What about plants and animals? In the new heavens and the new earth, will we still have plants and animals? And Aquinas' answer is no. Those are all perishable things, okay? You can't make them immortal by glorifying their souls in grace. They haven't got souls that can take that kind of enhancement. So they would have to be mortal. We're not going to need them for food. And um, so uh, he says no. There will not be plants or animals in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Now, I sincerely hope he's wrong. Okay. I, I hope so. Not that I expect to meet my old pets up there. That's ridiculous nonsense. When a pet dies, there's nothing left of it. It doesn't exist anymore. It can't survive cessation of its body and pick it up again. It can't be resurrected. But plants and animals pertain to the perfection of the world. As St. Thomas makes clear in his discussions on creation, why is the universe such a big diversified place? Because it's more glorious that way. It's more beautiful that way. And I would hate to see all of those living forms just dropped because we just didn't need them anymore. There, I mean, there's also aesthetic contemplation, isn't there? Aesthetic experience. And I don't know. I think the new heavens and the new earth should be a little bit more than St. Thomas thought, a little bit more like the Garden of Eden. Let's at least get the trees back. So, oh, 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 I don't see, I don't see why 
Look, St. Thomas thought that God, by his power, could arrest the movements of the heavenly spheres. That way time would come to an end, okay? And uh, the natural sufferings that lead to decay would come to an end. All right, fine. If God can suspend the motions of the heavenly spheres, why can't he suspend the decay processes in an animal body? Hmm? No, it's not naturally immortal. No, it doesn't have a soul. No. It just will be immune to disease and decomposition. Why couldn't it be that way? Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask St. Thomas why it can't be that way. Okay. Not that I want to see any dog I ever owned up there. I am tired of those beasts. But um, I wouldn't mind seeing a peacock or two. One more thing. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now I go to prepare one for you. Okay. What are those mansions? <laughs> Don't get your hopes up. Don't get your real estate dreams kindled. First of all, Mancio, in, uh, in, 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 in ancient Latin, and there was a similar word in Greek, <laughs> simply meant a dwelling place and a common, it didn't mean a, f a fancy place, a dwelling place. And the different dwelling places for people in heaven are going to be established by their level of love, by their level of charity. Okay? So you want a good place in heaven? I mean, you want a ringside seat at the beatific vision? Love folly. Love deeply, love passionately our Lord and his work on earth. And you will be in the bullseye, in, in, in the catbird seat. You'll be right there. At the, and, and that's the mansion. Okay. No special real estate dreams to come true in heaven. And um, I don't know, it's... That's St. Thomas's take on the mind. He got that from the Church Fathers. And I think it's probably right. But, I don't know, we could always say, well, you know, a little bit of aesthetic contemplation wouldn't be bad. The New Jerusalem is supposed to have its streets paved with gold gates made out of topaz and so on. What's, that all, what's all that about? Give me a shack out of Topaz, and I'm not going to complain. Anyway, that's my little discussion for you of life in the fire-cured new earth in the resurrected body. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Does anyone have a question? Dr. Marshner? Yes. Do those in purgatory, can they pray for each other? I doubt it. Um, 
they can benefit from our prayers, but they cannot intercede for us, and I think they also cannot intercede for each other. Okay. They need to have their wills and habits cleaned up before they are admitted into that glorious realm of activity in which we will spend eternity. Uh, yes, Dr. Marshner, as saints, um, how will we help the faithful after the end of the world? How can, how can we intercess with them if they don't need uh, intercession? How can we, uh, you, you said that the saints will intercess for us if we pray, uh, pray to them. Yeah. Uh, how will they do that after the end of the world? when there's no one left to intercede for. There won't be anybody left in this life, that's true. Nobody left in the church militant. But there will for a time still be people in the church suffering. Eventually, yeah, I know, I know. Eventually we will reach the point where everybody is either in heaven having finished with purgatory or they are in hell where they can't be benefited. And what are we going to pray for then? There's nobody left who can benefit from our prayers. The blessed are fully blessed. Eh? The damned are beyond improvement. And so um, our prayers will just have to take the direction of praise. Praise and glorify God for his marvelous providence Praise for his mercy that he has shown for us. Uh, in, in other words, yeah, the, the intercessory business will come to an end. Okay. Dr. Marshall, if, if I pray for somebody who died 30 years ago, yeah. you think God will retroactively apply those prayers as if it was being, he was being prayed for the moment after he died, being that God is really, what's time to God? Exactly. Absolutely. Wherever the soul prayed for is in its needs, uh, your prayer will be applied. And he or she will receive the benefit. Yeah. What about praying to? I mean, if uh, supposing somebody died last week, I mean, can you pray to them? Or, I mean, do you have to wait a certain period of time? How do you know when it's safe to pray to somebody? You can't go wrong. I mean, if you invoke someone to pray for you, either they're not there to hear it because they're up to the eyeballs in purgatorial suffering, or they're in hell, or they are there to hear it, and then you done good. Why have you done good if they're in hell? If they're, if they're in hell, they won't hear it. So then your prayer is wasted? Yeah. Your prayer doesn't get applied to somebody. <laughs> some other well, I hope you have more than one prayer up your sleeve. <laughs> There's all this talk about the, or all this talk, but it, the Paschal, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It, everything yeah. sounds very physical and like I can't imagine it without plants and animals or whatever. I mean, it's like 
it's not really a new earth and a new heaven, or it really is, and you're having a wedding feast. I mean, yeah. can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb is a biblical image of paradise, uh, a convivium with our Lord Jesus Christ. We will see him uh, in his glorified humanity. We'll, we will join him in that state of our nature. And, um, you know, it's going to be a very, very, very joyful occasion. And a wedding feast is a perfect example of that in our present experience. And um, <laughs> we may have to do without the bridal bouquet, bouquets, if St. Thomas is right. But I hope he's wrong. John Henry Newman uh, conceived of heaven. Uh, he mentioned that heaven, in some cases, is seen as a continuation of this life without the negatives. Right. Whereas he looked at it as, no, that's not the way it is. Our focus is going to be entirely on God. Uh, how would St. Thomas uh, comment on that uh, concept? Uh, he would agree completely. All right. It's the, it's the vision of God, the focus on God, that is going to supply um, your joy and your ability to use your resurrected body and your ability to do good for others. Uh, it'll be your concentration on God that gives you all of the abilities in, 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 that, in that line. And, um, yeah, God is the source of joy. I, I, maybe, maybe I'm being unchristian, un I don't know. Maybe I'm just not thinking clearly enough about having my joy totally in God. Okay. I keep wanting, out of the corner of my mind, a magnolia flower or two. Sorry about that. Will there be a mass or holy communion like we have here on earth in heaven? No. No. The, um, the uh, economy of the sacraments is for this life and this world no sacraments in heaven because we will be tasting all of the realities that the sacraments symbolize okay. so the age of sacraments will be over as of um, well the last judgment the great conflagration wherever you want to put the exact end point but it's coming to an end thank you dr. Marshner Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.